Now, as anybody who's ever listened to this podcast knows, uh, we have established it is impossible to find out what the fuck is going on unless you have expert advice. If you want to know what the fuck is going on with the NHS, there is only one person you could possibly go to, Dr. Phil Hammond. And as luck would have it, here he is. I've already taken up... Um, uh, how are you, Phil? I'm very well, thank you. I thought you were going to introduce Matt Hancock then, the man at the centre of the NHS, but <laughs> until recently. But he, yes. he wasn't available. He's moved on to more expensive things. I'm very well, thank you. It was nice when someone asked how the doctor is, but no, I'm fine. Tickety yeah, 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 no, good. We, we, we want you to be. We want you to be good. I could easily. Uh, there's all sorts of things that come. You know, I expect after six minutes, you know, this, this consultation would have ended, and you'll tell me that to go out, and you'll have to do another interview because there'll be. You know, well, of course, in the old days, we used to say in a day. to, to wind up after six minutes. We used to say there's a lot of it about. Um, it's probably a virus, <laughs> but if you tell people it's probably a virus these days, they shit themselves. So we've lost <laughs> our best closing sentence. Uh, I once did, this is true, I, they, uh, when I worked in Birmingham, um, I was a GP and I was a lecturer in the Department of Primary Care at Birmingham University. And they had this computer that analysed all your consultations and it came up with the most common word that a particular or phrase that a particular doctor would use when they were consulting. And mine as a GP was, I'm not entirely sure what the diagnosis is, but I'm fairly certain it's nothing too serious, which is basically encapsulates the whole of general practice. And then occasionally people come back and you realize it is slightly more serious than you thought. Uh, but a lot of it is, and, is reassurance. Uh, but that is what, yeah, that is what most people want, isn't it? I know if I, I very rarely go to the doctors, but most of the time I've just come away thinking, oh, they didn't seem that bothered. But they didn't <laughs> no, look at it no. or take the slightest bit of interest in any way of what I had. Yeah, well, you can show me but it now if you want to. that bothered. Well, it, it's, it's, <laughs> when I trained, we were sort of the, the keepers of the information. We had all the power. There was no internet. You weren't allowed to read your notes. Uh, and so we controlled everything. We could get you in and out the door in six minutes. You didn't have a chance to ask questions questions. Often we didn't tell you the truth. I remember in the 80s when I trained, we often wouldn't tell patients if they had cancer. And we rarely would tell them if they had motor neuron disease or multiple sclerosis. Um, and one of the reasons the NHS is in a mess is that everyone has access to all their information now and they ask all good questions. And it, it, we've become kinder and we give more information, but it's made it a much longer, harder job to do because uh, we no longer just shut you up and get you out the door in six minutes. It's one of the reasons why you didn't tell people that they had something terrible like that is because the six minutes would be up and you were just about to tell <laughs> yeah. them and you go, oh, I'm sorry, you'll have to come back again if you want more. We used to call it beneficent paternalism, this idea that doctors were the ones who do control the information, decided what you needed to know. You know, that we had a lot of information in our saddlebags, but we would only give you just about enough as you wanted. If you told someone they had high blood pressure, they'd shit themselves, they were going to have a stroke. They'd never have sex again. They'd never go outdoors. So you told them as little as possible. Uh, and it might be worth trying that again, the old-style stuff. <laughs> Hand out placebos and just one. tell people, oh, that's a lot of it about, probably a virus. Have a placebo, bugger off. I hope I, I've been very lucky myself, really. But I, just once I went to a, a doctor, it must be about 20 years ago, I went to the doctor and it panicked me because I had a very low heart rate. I don't know I don't know why, but I think it's quite a good thing, isn't it? Uh, yes, unless it's it, naught. Now, it that's quite bad naught, if it goes yeah. all the way down there. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't quite that bad. <laughs> okay. But it was even though I you know, one of these, like Beyond Borg famously had a yeah, heart rate of 36 yeah. or something. I think mine wasn't much different anyway. Anyway, whatever it was. Uh, and the doctor was quite worried. I can't remember why I'd gone. There. He was quite worried, and he said, "He said I'm going to book into the nurse next time and take your uh, your pulse." And oh, I, this is now I struggle to do this for reasons you become clear. He was Chinese, right? And I I, you know, there's no way of doing this, you know, without getting cancelled. So I'm not going to do the voice. But <laughs> you imagine in his Chinese accent, he was going, "Where's the pulse? Where's the pulse? Can't find pulse." And um. I thought I'd light it up with a little joke. And I said, oh, uh, I'm a vampire. And so then he looked very worried and he went over to, to his computer. And I thought, what's he doing? And he was looking up. He was looking up notes and he was going, don't say vampire. Don't say vampire on notes. And I said, no, it's a joke. I, I'm not really a vampire. <laughs> 
They do. I mean, you're supposed to log all your, your previous medical conditions. And uh, clearly, if you were a vampire, that should have been on your medical records. I think that's entirely reasonable behavior from the doctor. I think. But yeah. But it did worry me because he, he said, you know, they said there was something uh, seriously wrong or anything. Like that. It wasn't in the end. That's 20 years ago. But so that's it what's so fascinating about that little six minutes. I mean, healthcare is largely relational. It's built on the relationship between your doctor or your nurse or your pharmacist or your receptionist. And that six minutes can go in any direction at all. They did a lovely survey where um, they used simulated patients. So these were actors pretending uh, to have a particular condition. And they went into different doctors at different times with exactly the same set of symptoms and got completely different diagnoses, completely different chats. Then they went into the same doctor on different days of the week and got entirely different consultations. Because if it was close to Friday afternoon and people wanted to wind up and go home, they'd shut things down quickly or... You know, sometimes they'd and ask the you doctor, about your angina. None of the doctors went, hang on, you came in the other day. Or did the, oh, the actors so good? Yeah. Ah, today. Today I played a, a 16th century pirate. I completely fooled the doctor. <laughs> he said, oh, it's not a wooden leg. There's a lot of it about. It's just a virus. It's worth trying with a set of wigs or something, <laughs> hair pieces. You should try it. Just go in with that same, I've got a very low pulse and I'm a vampire, to six different doctors and you'll get six very different solutions. Oh, Jesus. It's probably best we shut the NHS down. Is that the conclusion so far? No, I think the trouble with the NHS, as you'll remember, being slightly on the left of politics, is that we all, for every day of the week, we have to claim the NHS is in crisis ever since it was born. Mm. Uh, and that's a slightly political thing. But, but then it becomes a bit like hitting a watermelon with a sledgehammer. We forget the good that it's done. So... When, you know, Nye Bevan founded the NHS with beverages support, um, half of us died before the age of 65, and now perhaps one in three people will live to 100. The person who lives to 150 may already have been born. It's probably not you, Mark, but it's, you know, we are living longer and longer with diseases that previously would have killed us, and we've got much better at treating them. So partly the NHS is in crisis because it's a victim of its own success. But that's not to say it couldn't and shouldn't be better. Um, so, you know, I think you can celebrate its achievements without being, you know, yeah, you need to be a critical friend at times, I think. Okay. Now, this was that was going to be one of my first uh, uh, questions, really, although I know we've been going quite a while. But uh, so at the moment, there is, it, uh, oh, the NHS is facing the bleakest winter ever and, and, and so on. This is sort of what you hear a great deal of. Uh, but for those of us who are of a certain age, we have, you know, I remember sort of, I remember going on a demonstration. We had a, a load of comics went on demonstrations to support the NHS when exactly the same was said. I think it was in 1988. So is this situation at the moment qualitatively different? Is it is it significantly worse than when we claimed that these crises were taking place in previous years? Um, I, I think it is worse. Um, and the two reasons it's probably worse, one is the pandemic has had a huge effect. So not only did the pandemic cause huge stress to the system, we sadly lost perhaps up to a thousand health and care workers from COVID themselves, and then huge amount of post-traumatic stress, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But the whole process of the pandemic, the lockdowns and everything else that went in it, did it dramatically widened health inequalities, uh, made people's mental health worse. And we know there are very strong links between mental ill health and physical ill health. So if you're severely mentally ill, you're far more likely to get a physical illness. And that's probably what's going to kill you faster than your mental illness. So this rapid deterioration in public health on top of an already struggling health service, we had waiting lists of over 4 million going into the pandemic. Uh, so it's not particularly surprising there are over 7 million now. Uh, we had record staff shortages going into the pandemic, not just in the NHS, but in social care. So the two systems are inextricably linked. And if social care is falling to pieces, you can't discharge your patients. Uh, so that's one issue is that we had 10 years of austerity. Uh, we didn't really plan for capacity to be able to cope with a pandemic or in the sort of the normal day to day working in the NHS. We don't have sufficient capacity. So even if we train the staff, we don't have the beds. Uh, then we had the pandemic. And um, without getting too Brexity, uh, I don't think Brexit helped because we had a lot of excellent European health workers and care workers who'd come over here. And it's now much less attractive for them to do so. And we're struggling to recruit from other countries. And there's an ethical argument as to whether we should be anyway. Is it fair to take doctors and nurses and care workers from countries that may need them more than we do? Um, so the, all number of reasons, I think, has made it even worse. And I think the decade of austerity has meant in real terms, nurses, um, ambulance drivers, consultants, junior doctors pay is less. 
in real terms than it was in 2010. So you can understand why, <laughs> as well as, you know, there's yeah, yeah, physical yeah. So, trauma of going through a pandemic. They're pissed off that their pay has gone down as well. They've worked as hard as they ever have done for the last three and a bit years, and their pay in relative terms has gone down. So you absolutely understand why they're all so angry. Well, the other, the other side of the same question, then, Phil, is that, because I certainly don't remember this, uh, that so much, obviously the NHS is, has always been enormously popular. And uh, uh, who was it? Was it? Was it Blair who said the NHS is the closest we get to a, a religion? No, it was Nigel Lawson. Or was it? it was uh, Nigel Thatcher's, Lawson, right. yeah, uh, Chancellor. Um, but before, if nurses had gone on strike, there would have been at best a sort of split in the population. Mm. This time, it seems that there's overwhelming support for uh, for the nurses and for medical staff. Um have I got that right? It seems that there's, there's, it's just overwhelming support. The radio phone-ins, you know, the, yeah. uh, the I don't know, just generally just well, listen to people. I think because of the pandemic, a lot of people have had more exposure to uh, the health service than they previously would have done, and they realised how dedicated and extraordinarily hard that they work. I mean, anyone who's seen... And also, of course, we were, we had live feeds from intensive care units and, you know, wonderful care workers, critical care nurses, particularly putting on those PPE things, having them on for 12 hours, stuck in these suits and just delivering the most compassionate care. So I think there's no doubt in the public mind about how hard these people work and how vital they are. And whether we had strikes or not, the bottom line is that if you can't make the working conditions and salary attractive for people, you're not going to have sufficient. And that's the issue. People are walking away because they can find the equivalent amount of money or perhaps even more in a job that's less stressful that allows them a family life. And I, th I think there's something's changed in my lifetime where, where health jobs were definitely seen as a vocation. When I was a junior doctor, it was seen as a privilege. You would work 120 hours some weeks. You know, we were paid a third uh, of our normal rate for overtime. So it was cheaper to make one doctor work 120 hours than employ three doctors to work 40 hours a week. I mean, that's changed a bit. That how it worked? That, hang on, I just want yeah. to... So that's amazing. Yeah. So you would... Because, yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the way that sort of manual work... Would, oh, yeah, you get hmm. double double pipe and all that. Sunday, you get treble pipe. I was a milkman, treble pay on yeah. Sunday. But you've got one third of yeah. the normal. And the difficulty but was back then is you know when I trained it was a not largely but there was a strong public school impetus in medicine. There was hearty boys and a few girls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it was quite hard to feel sorry for doctors in the sense that most of us came from quite privileged middle class backgrounds and in, went on to earn reasonable amounts of money and jobs with satisfaction and respect. So it was quite hard to go up on the picky. And, and they all looked always looked a bit naff. Junior doctors on the picket line. What do we want? We're not sure. <laughs> when do we want it? Whenever you tell us. You know, you look at Piers and Crispin and Toby and they all looked a bit, you know, wasn't really up the workers. I've always liked them sort of, yeah. I've always liked that sort of industrial action though. You know, like when actors, yeah. I remember sort of when uh, in the night, that 1979, the, the, uh, the National Film Theatre went out strike yeah. and there they all were. And of course we all did yeah. little yeah. jokes. What do we want? Projects, lovely and all that. <laughs> well, and, yes, um, yeah. I think what's changed and is for the, the better is that we draw medical graduates from a, a far broader pool. Not only do we have far more women now we uh, uh, recruit far more students from state school um and so we're getting a, a far more realistic pool of doctors um but they're uh, you know a bit more politically wise and a bit bolshier them i think they're more compassionate i think more women in medicine has made as a kind of profession we uh, are more empathic but actually they're quite assertive now and bolshy and they work to their contract. So in the old days it was you know it was a, it's a vocation and you'll work an extra weekend and we might give you a bit of Buttered toast at the end of it, if you're good. And you thought, you know, Even along the line, you'd get so a merit award or something. Now people are saying, look, this is my contract. I'm working to contract. I'm not doing extra shifts. You wanted me to do that. You pay me. This is my clocking off time. I've already done half an hour unpaid. I'm going home now. Um, and fair play to them, because for years, we've just allowed ourselves to be overworked, as of GPs who are often forgotten in this equation. And now they're getting a bit bullshit and saying, going to work to our contract. And uh, that'll cause even more shortages because we're not doing the extra for nothing anymore. Even so, I mean that is, in a sense, that sort of uh, does illustrate exactly the, the the problem that the lots of people in the NHS can cause absolute havoc by 
working to their contract. Yeah. <laughs> From now on, yeah. what I'm going to do is I'm going to do exactly what yeah. we have agreed between us that I will do. How dare you only yeah. do what you have agreed to do? <laughs> when you have agreed to do 60 hours, yeah. you should have do another 40 on top of that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, you know, there's no... I, I don't know, even the worst treated people, the miners in the 1920s or something, mm. weren't expected to then do another 10 hours for three hours pay. Yeah, it is. it is, different. And the other thing is there's huge, obviously huge wage disparity in the NHS. So although consultants pay relatively, it's really dipped since 2010. The, those who choose can earn healthy sums of money in the private sector, whereas your average nurse isn't able to do that. And there are some nurses who can't even afford their monthly union fees. So they, have, they don't belong to a union because they can't afford... 10, 12, 14 quid a month to belong. So there's there's a huge scale within the NHS of very lowly paid workers and and people who are serving two masters working in the NHS and working in the private sector, and that makes it even more complicated. Oh, that's become so that has become significantly more the case over the since the austerity years. Who would have thought that a, a policy known as austerity would have resulted <laughs> in austerity? Yeah. Yes, and what's it? That shows how confident they were yeah. in a way, doesn't it? Back twelve years ago, that they could call it that and be proud of it. Yes, and and now, of course, they're now because they're having to say, "Oh no, I don't think there's. I think it's completely ridiculous to suggest that any of the current austerity is due to the policy we called austerity." It is interesting because what's clearly in austerity with less money for public services, public health is going to suffer. But the biggest link between austerity and health is is you know called out by people like Sir Michael Marmot for years. It's the link between social deprivation and ill health. So there's a great professor of psychiatry called Lewis Appleby who says politicians kill far more people than doctors. So whenever there's a recession, there are far more suicides, particularly amongst men. And that's not just in the UK, that's in many countries. So every time you enact austerity and you cause widening health inequalities, profoundly affects people's mental and physical health, irrespective of the effect that it has on the NHS. So the poorer people are, the more likely they are to die young to suffer severe mental illness. We used to call it, and in tough areas, they call it shit life syndrome. Um, and people, you know, if you've got no job, no house, no garden, no self-esteem, no reason to live, you know, you're not going to pop down to Tesco's for a punnet of sun-dried tomatoes and you're not going to be doing your health screening because you're just, life is awful. And that that's... I think the diseases of despair, particularly coming out of the pandemic, where people just think, Christ, what's the point anymore, have, have put extra pressure on the NHS because it's almost like the final common pathway because it's free at the front door. We pay a lot in taxes, but it's free at the point of access. Everything in life can be funneled through the NHS. So at the stream end, we over-medicalise life. You know, because people have access to the internet now, they can self-diagnose and self-label, they can attribute themselves a label and they can demand that an expert sorts it out and you can go to the doctor about any condition you want to. Whereas perhaps in the old days, people had lived through a few world wars were a bit more resilient and would sort their own shit out first before they'd trouble the doctor. So I think there are all sorts of complex things. But of all the things, that that 10-year run of austerity ending with a pandemic has absolutely crippled the NHS at the moment. And I, I think it is going to take – I don't think it'll suddenly disappear, but we're going to go back to those days when I trained where you had two-year waiting lists and people would die on the waiting list. They'd die waiting for an ambulance. That's going to become commonplace again, whereas that little brief period under Blair, although I didn't agree with the PFI and I didn't agree with some of the outsourcing, there was a time when they had good economic conditions and and people of my age will say that was the, the time when the NHS functioned best. It had more resources over a sustained period and we were actually get, getting people seen within two weeks and operating on them and that, was, that will be seen probably as the golden era of the NHS. I bet there is a book somewhere that says, if you're a self-help book that goes, if you're feeling depressed and run down and a little bit suicidal, why not pop down to the shop and get a punnet of sun-dried tomatoes? <laughs> I bet there is. Well, of course, in the other day, the is. other thing that we've lost is because we are so socially isolated, in the old days, you'd go and see your granny or you'd chat to your mum. You know, your mum or your granny was this font of wisdom who'd done everything from prolapses to midlife blues to sexual assault, whatever. She had the answer to everything because she'd been through it. But now families are splintered. People live on their own. Um, there's less social connection. They don't have that first port of call. I said we should have 
midlife mums staffing the NHS. That'd be like your first port of call. And they would tell you everything about contraception and ring passeries and mental health issues because they'd been through oh, it I all. Know, I don't think my mum would be great for that. Yeah, just stick them at the front door and say, if you can get past the midlife mum, then maybe have a dog to cuddle, so give them a bit of pet therapy. And then only once they've got through those two barriers. What's the trouble, dear? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. This fit, I mean, leg yeah. is just not working. Oh, dear. And where are you from? Well, I'm from up. What's the weather been like there? Yeah. That'd be my mum. That'd be my mum. I went to see the doctor. I think I've got motor neuron disease. She asked me what the weather was like. <laughs> yeah, well, so, in fact, this does lead to a question. We will come all the way back to that, I promise. Okay. But, so, your career is one that I think is uh, quite, it's, it's significant, not just in terms of um, health, but also in terms of comedy. Because... Up until so, when when did you start doing? Nineteen ninety. I can remember seeing show. you and probably Jeremy Hardy at the watershed in Bristol in the days when you were doing oh, right, a Kinnock, yeah, yeah. Kinnock impersonation, and re- really liking the fact that people could make politics funny. So I was sort of inspired, and I did my first gig as an open mic slot to Arnold Brown at the wow. watershed in nineteen eighty nine, and I remember him walking on stage, and there was huge applause. He said, "Not too much applause." That's how fascism started. And it was just such a good <laughs> opening line. But he was really kind to me um, after that. And I was just telling, what's it like being a junior doctor? And he said, you know, if that was really off, because I'd done awful medical reviews like Back Passage to India and all that stuff. That, but that was my first public gig. And he was really kind and supportive. And then Tony, my uh, comedy partner, Tony and I were house officers together, Tony Gardner, and we formed Struck Off and Die and went to Edinburgh in 1990. So that was our first fringe. Um, but that was a big hit straight away, wasn't it? It was. I think it's because we were actually junior doctors. So we weren't medical students anymore. And we were telling really quite dark stories about uh, killing patients when we were tired and burning the notes and burying the x-rays and laughing it off in the mess. And the BBC, bless them, came to record it. And some idiot didn't listen to it. It was going out at midnight in the Celtic Lodge, in a Masonic Lodge in Edinburgh. And for some reason, they put it out on Pick of the Fringe after the Archers got record numbers of complaints to the Broadcasting Standards Council, whose chair then was Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, William, who judged it inappropriate material for a comedy show. Fantastic. And the great thing is, back in the day, Radio 4 would, well, loved it. They loved causing a bit of controversy and, and gave us a series. And because they gave us a series, we were invited to the BBC Light Entertainment Christmas Party. You've probably been to that in the old Paris studio. Yeah, yeah. And I met Ian yeah, yeah, Hislop yeah. and followed him into the toilet and said, can I have a column in private eye? And he said, do you mind not standing so close to me? Um, but I, I left the toilet. Oh, he's, as, as he's pro- a public school yeah, boy, exactly. isn't he? Yeah, he was he's, okay. He's used to being followed into public toilets. So it's that sort of combination of struck off and die of the comedy and then writing for private and I, which I've done since 1992, um, so over th- 30 years now. So it's, it's those sort of two strands. But unlike a lot of comedy doctors give up the day job, they they realise you can earn a lot more money taking the piss out of the NHS than you can working in it. So a lot of the, you know, Graham Garden, Graham Chapman, Jonathan Miller, Adam Kay, Harry Hill, whatever, a lot of doctors don't do the, the day job, but I carried on doing both because uh, I enjoy them. I've always enjoyed doing all of them part-time. So 30-odd years, I've juggled medicine and comedy and broadcasting and and doctoring so uh so you're still so you're still what in, the, in terms i've just of retired health i retired at 60 so i'd last 11 years i was working in pediatric chronic fatigue mecfs uh, in bath at the royal united hospital and uh, i retired earlier uh, this year at 60 uh, although they have asked me back uh, i'm uh, I, I can't decide at the moment whether to go back or not at uh, um i wanted to do it so Sorry, no, but I'll come back to that in a second. But I just sort of think it's so, it's it's such a sort of sign of our comedy changed in a way because it back in the days before the sort of mid 80s when it all changed and comedy was just a for the most part was just about telling jokes. Yeah, it had to change for that to be possible, didn't it? It had to be sort of people talking about their experiences or people, you know, t- I don't know, telling about the talking about their lives and so on in one way, maybe in a sort of mm. slightly deferred way, like Alexi Sale sort of doing his it, it, almost playing a character and so on. But it was people not just standing there and telling old mm. jokes, and in a way that that that's the sort of thing that was made possible for that then was somebody doing comedy by telling a series of stories, true stories about the chaos of working in the health service. And it was just hugely popular. 
that everyone except the Reese Mogg family. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember it's because you don't have any training, do you, in comedy? And other than doing awful medical reviews with very sycophantic student audiences, it was a it changed me as a person and a doctor starting to do stand up in front of the public. So. Traditionally, medical reviews had won the worst show at Edinburgh Award, the Snake Bite Award. They used to call it. Um, oh, that's and, right. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and there, there is a Malcolm Hardy yeah. would sort of be yeah. Malcolm Hardy would sometimes book the worst yeah. act, usually of a Cambridge Footlights act, and he would book it to go down at uh, up the creek or at the <laughs> Tunnel Club, which was the most notoriously yeah. all these Millwall fans yeah. and these sort of Cambridge Footlights <laughs> people. Bless them, they sort of go, "Oh, it's wonderful. We've been booked to do this comedy show," and they would just be, <laughs> and he'd introduce fucking Cambridge, fucking push, fucking twat. And they just come on. Hello, and they'd start to do their sketch. Hello, I'm Socrates. Hi, and I'm Plato. And we're going to enact the, some of the dialogue that took place. Fuck off, you fucking posh fucking bottles everywhere. And that would be, uh, and that would entertain Malcolm. <laughs> He, yes, he was. There was a great thing about his uh, scrotum. I mean, when he would do his Charles de Gaulle impersonation, putting his spectacles on top of his scrotum, and the, the Guardian reviewer in the front row saying, testicles not so much appeared as abseiled down. <laughs> and he, I, yeah, he was. My son, I've got to this remember. My son, I told my son when he who's Elliot, who's now uh, of this podcast, and. Uh, he's a stand-up himself, <laughs> and uh, luckily has just popped out. If he was in the room, I'd struggle to tell this. He was a, I told him this when he was about eight, and he just about Malcolm and his scrotum and his Charles de Gaulle impression, and I don't know, wouldn't he sing the Marseillaise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, with the glasses around, you know. <laughs> and I told Elliot, I just thought this was so funny. And the following night, I sort of put him to bed. He was been about seven. <laughs> And then about five minutes later, he came downstairs completely naked, having found a pair of glasses, put them in the, wow. the, the appropriate position, saluted and sang, you know, I'm probably quite impressed if he sang the actual first line of the Marseillaise. Well, it's lucky you didn't. La you could have. And said, was that, is that what it was like, that? <laughs> I was very proud. You could have to told honest. him the story of Chris Lynham putting a firecracker up his ass to Ethel Merman's There's No Business Like Show Business. That would have. He's still doing it, apparently. I did Bath Comedy Club as a warm up to as Edinburgh. A doctor, would you advise no, that? No, Firecracker up the ass. Yes, we see that fills up casualty every third Wednesday. There's people. That, that was. He's still doing it on stage, still putting the firecracker up his ass to Ethel Merman. You think he must go to. It must go wrong. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Chris Lyon puts it puts yeah well well we pretty much explained it. He he finishes. It's quite a, it's a big yes. It's a big finish. finale. Big finale. There's no business like show, and he's completely naked with a a sort of a, like a Roman candle type yes. thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up up his ass, and out come all the. Fo- it's very pretty, and. Um, I would imagine that once every two or three months he's back at the GP and they go, <laughs> yes, what seems to be the troubles of the federal mechanical guy really must strongly advise, you know, with the firework, especially after a certain age, muscles tend to relax and I'm seeing the, just, is it not time to sort of maybe think of something else when you do impersonations of barnyard animals, something like that? Oh, sorry, carry oh. on. Oh, that is that's a unknown caller. Yes, I. <laughs> <laughs> we were now in a different comedy world. We were in a world that, on the one hand, had uh, uh, Malcolm Hardy's genitalia, and on the other hand, had people being able to talk about their their lives and so on in a in a real way. Because um, no one thought that anything a comic said was true. I mean, the first few years, I mean, if I if I got up and said something, people would think, "Oh, I didn't realise that was true." That story you were telling. But now we're in a world where that did become the case, and so you you then have an authority, don't you? Because when you can stand up and tell your stories, I'm a doctor. Everybody, that's funny. The things you were saying were funny because they knew they were true. Yeah, but I remember having a discussion with Miles Kington, bless him, who was. He was in a there was a musical troupe called Instant Sunshine and Miles was the non-medical one and his wife Caroline directed us at Edinburgh and we were having this discussion about clearly as a doctor you have a chance to 
abuse your position. So, you know, I can remember you when you were talking about the story about your dad, etc. And you, you said on stage, you just think I'm making all this bollocks up, aren't you? And and, oh, right. <laughs> and the trouble is, sometimes you do. And then sometimes you go, as you all comics do, you go a bit like an oyster and you have this grain of truth and you think, I can polish that and make that a bit more funny if I tell it in a slightly <laughs> disingenuous yeah, yeah. way. And and that's fine. That it's, it's the one, you know, it's interesting in medicine where you're supposed to tell a version of the truth at all times. As comedians, you sort of accept a degree of lies for laughs because the the bottom line is you've got to make people laugh. So there were occasions, and and obviously to protect confidentiality, often I would attribute a story that happened to someone else to me, and then swap my story for somebody else's to protect confidentiality. Um, but yeah, it, I always I worried a bit about that, and I thought, well, fuck it. In the end, as long as people are laughing, it doesn't really matter. So there are a few lies for laughs in there along the way. Well, I think this is where I think that the world of comedy and world of medicine are, are very close. And I get very fussed. There's not a week goes by without some article, some furore somewhere, if it's Jerry Sadovich or whatever. And uh, how dare how dare you even try to make jokes about this subject because it's serious? And the two things I always think about that, you wouldn't say that about any other art form. You wouldn't say, how dare someone write a song about something as tragic as a, 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 a imagine folk singers in the, in the 1880s. How dare you write a, a song about something as tragic as a boat turning upside down and the fishermen all being drowned. Well, that's the old fucking genre bollocks, isn't it? But, uh, but it's not, it's not just that. It's the assumption that if you make a joke about something, then you are making light of it and you're actually disrespecting it. Whereas, of course, we know, if you do comedy, that you do jokes about things because you do care about them. And one of the uh, arguments I always make is, I don't know, paramedics tell the darkest jokes yeah. about the things they see, not because they don't care, but because they do care. And that must be sort of, you know, very much the world of which you're a part. I guess. Yeah, it is interesting. Whenever I, not just medical audiences, I ask people, do you think it's possible to be a compassionate uh, doctor, nurse, paramedic, and have a really black sense of humour? And most people will say, yes, we think it's essential. But I think there is an element where... You know, when you're a comedian, particularly when you're younger, you've got this exhibitionist desire to shock because you want to be noticed. So you'll tell the most outrageous story. We tell the story that I wouldn't tell now uh, in 1990 about a dead baby's head falling off that was true at the very end of our Edinburgh show. And that's the one that caused so much upset. And I think about it now and it it's hard, isn't it? Because you, you wear this other role as a doctor. You know, I'm not Jimmy Carr. I'm not Frankie Boyle. I can't just go off on one and say extremely cruel stuff and not expect there to be a combat. And, and I think over the years I have self-censored more because I also exist as a public figure and a doctor and I've probably become a bit more compassionate as I've got older. It's interesting that the medicine when I trained was quite cruel because patients couldn't read their notes. We would write disparaging things in the notes, you know, like T.F. Bundy, totally fucked, but unfortunately not dead yet. There was pumpkin positive. We wrote that in the notes. Pumpkin positive means we shined a pen torch in your mouth and your whole head lit up. When I worked at St. Thomas's, there was a consultant who was really threatened by, by usually women who opted for complementary therapies, and he used to describe them as grollies. And grollies was guardian readers of limited intelligence in ethnic skirts. That's almost all of medical bigotry. And there was like this little boys thing. You'd make these little private jokes. You can't do it now. It's not so funny when it's read out in court because um, people have access to their notes. So we used to have this thing, and now it's almost driven underground. Um, um, Adam Kay yeah. has been able to bring it out again because, of course, he stopped doing medicine. So this is going to hurt, and his diaries, etc., enormously popular. But had he still been practicing, he might have struggled to be so black and bleak and funny. Um, and and the, the new crop of comedians coming in now who are still doctors are, are much more watered down compared to the traditional old crueler humour. So I think it exists, but I think it's it's slightly more hidden away than it was in the old days. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I uh no, I can imagine Do you think it's a very British thing? Do you think that people in sort of other countries have uh have the same sort of attitude towards uh, the same sort of jokes and so on. You think in other countries, or think, or think they? I just mean, laughing find at the that. most inappropriate time. There's something, isn't there, about you know, it's like farting in church, isn't it? There's something. I remember during my medical finals, a woman with multiple sclerosis, which isn't much to laugh at, 
But uh, they get a bit euphoric, often on steroids. So she was a little bit giggly. And I had to, with a wisp of cotton wool, I had to check her sensation. Uh, and she, I said, close your eyes. And uh, if you can feel this little wisp of cotton wool, I'm going to put on your thigh. I'm going to say yes or no. And I tickled her thigh with the, the cotton wool. And she let loose the most enormous fart in my medical finals. And I didn't know what to do. So I said, was that a yes or a no? She laughed even more loudly. <laughs> I started laughing. And my consultant, bless him, completely stony face, didn't laugh at all. And my reference from St. Thomas's said, this student refuses to take medicine seriously. He does not deserve a St. Thomas's house job, which I thought was a bit oh. harsh. But I was always laughing, you know, even close to death, you can laugh with patients. There's always stuff. You can include well, them in the joke and you can laugh at them privately behind their backs. And I think both of them are probably quite important coping mechanisms. The, the aforementioned Jeremy Hardy, when he was probably probably about four, five, six weeks from the end. Uh, and I went to the hospital with him a number of times. And once, uh, it wasn't with me, actually, Jack D went to the hospital with him and was sort of pushing him uh, pushing him around. And they went in to see the sort of consultant. And Jeremy knew he was really, really in the, the sort of last, in his last few weeks. And uh, he, he said to the consultant, uh, I, brought, uh, I, I brought someone with me. He's a trainee. He's a, he's a trainee cancer patient. This is he's training for when he's, when he's going to have it. I mean, that is so... <laughs> That's clever. That's, so... That's really clever. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, what, would you tell him that he shouldn't make that joke? That would be absurd, you know. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, people do my mate Mike his dad died recently and was quite ill getting close towards the end and Mike was finding it really difficult to go and see him and he pops in to see him at the hospice and his dad said Mike the, the, the doctor said I've only got um, two weeks left um, so I've chosen a week in July and a week in February it was just stupid old musical <laughs> joke. But joke to, to yeah, be able to brilliant. say that while you're actually two weeks away from death is, is exactly. clever I think. that makes it yeah, that makes it a better joke. Because why? That's one of the reasons why I changed my mind about Bob Monkhouse in his re, in his last months. So I I sort of met up with him a couple of times. I was doing, a, doing the lectures at the time at Television Centre, and he came over and he chatted. And he he said, "I'm doing a little show, and, and uh, would you like to come?" And I went along to it. And he was um, actually we, we gave him a little part in one of the lectures in the bit of, in the program about Charles Darwin. Would you believe? And uh, so he again, he knew he was very he had a, an old joke, I'm sure. But he said, uh, I, "I'm sure you'll have heard it a million times." But I went to the I went to the doctors, and he, he said it's not good. And uh, I said, "How long have I I got?" And the doctor said, ten. And I said, ten what?" And he went, nine. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, it's an old joke. Yeah. But there's something about someone who's yes. really ill saying that. That is quite but magnificent, I Why think. is that important? Coming back to our original theme of fixing the NHS, the, you know, the, the, my, my uh, auntie Queenie used to go, she was lovely, she said, all this wise Australian woman, she's going to go, Flop! the moment your sperm meets your egg, you join the queue for death. And, <laughs> and she didn't do it in a grim way. It was this idea that... <laughs> We all know that we're going to die. We are the one species, humans, apart from animals lining up in an abattoir. We're the one species who knows our fate long in advance. So given that we know that we're all going to die, what should healthcare society be delivering? We should all have a, a relatively decent life, whatever, tinged with a bit of indecency and a decent death and not screw things up for future generations. So, But the, the bit I'd start... That's what your auntie was, was yeah, getting at. Is that yeah. we are all going to die, so that's the bit of it that we should plan for. So we should say everybody deserves a decent death. I, we don't have enough hospice beds. Loads of people in the pandemic died without any palliative care at home. They died on their own very quickly, shitting the bed. Who knows what? You know, we should absolutely invest in giving people a, a decent send off. I personally want to try all the illegal drugs you're not supposed to take. I don't just want my diamorphine. I want psilocybin, you know, hallucinogenic mushrooms, the whole bloody lot when I'm dying. So you might as well have a big woof. But we should all be planning in advance as to what sort of death we not want. Not at once, though. They, they cancel each other. I don't know. I don't know. It's just the time to try it, isn't it? But you, <laughs> you'd think that's the one thing that we know. And one of the big stresses during the pandemic is loads of people suddenly got ill and they, in their 70s, 80s, whatever, they came into emergency departments. They hadn't made any future death wishes. They weren't allowed to bring their relatives with us. So the poor nurses in the full-on PPE have to phone up the relatives on an iPad and say, would your Uncle Malcolm like to be resuscitated in these circumstances? You know, we need to think about death and plan about that. And 
one of the issues health services are under strain is that people live a very long time. They don't think about their death. We're not a country yet that's moved towards any form of physician-assisted dying. And so we people cling on till the bitter end and often have quite difficult and unpleasant and expensive deaths. Um, but to go the other way and have, say, physician-assisted dying, you need the resources, you need more relational healthcare where you can really get to know someone and understand what they want. So that's one aspect of it. People need a decent death. The other thing we need to do to save the NHS is the, the other bookend of life, the start of life. The moment your sperm eats your egg is often where your health is defined. So really good antenatal care, really good midwifery care. You know, getting bored is about the most dangerous thing we do, and yet we don't properly staff our midwifery units. We've had so many NHS scandals where babies have harmed and mothers have died because we didn't have sufficient you know, care on duty. So at least get the bookends of life, give kids a sure start in life. Um, and sort their death out. So that's still, you think that is still not... Um, it's it, that, that, is, is that because of funding? It's partly, or is that yeah. I mean, it's always been the issue. case. And Jeremy Hunt sort of half got it right in his battle with junior doctors is that your risk of getting a bad treatment or, or dying or whatever is higher at certain times, at weekends and on bank holidays and things. And the same goes with having a baby. There are fewer staff on duty. If the registrar's delivering twins and your baby has a prolapse cord and there's a young doctor on, as in this is going to hurt, who hasn't done it before, uh, the chances of it not turning out well are much higher. Whereas if you happen, you know, in the middle of the day when the consultants and staff are all around. So they've tried to have consultant-led care and they've tried to spread the staff more thinly over seven days, but we still don't have enough. And that goes for just about anything. That's just a, a fact of life. So it is pretty scary. And these things are potentially sortable, um, but they cost money. And we haven't really, over the last 12 years, had someone to say, look, this this is, you know, you can have really good health care. Uh, we won't get it right every time, but if you want sort of a seven-day healthcare where your chances of survival of a stroke or a heart attack or a difficult birth are the same across seven days, this is what it's going to cost you in terms of the beds and resources we need and the staff we need. And and we ha- I haven't known that political conversation happen for a while. It certainly didn't happen during Brexit because that's all we talked about. I tried to stand against Rhys Mogg in the last election, who's my MP, or was until I moved a few days ago, and nobody wanted to talk about health and healthcare. They just wanted to talk about Brexit at the last election. Um, so we've had a whole you know, 10 years of not investing in capacity, not investing in beds, and suddenly we throw money at it. So if you look at the graph now, the UK isn't a significant outlier in terms of what we spend in Europe. The difference is over 15, 20, 30 years, we haven't invested year on year in beds and capacity. And that's why Blair and Brown decided that they had to to use the private and the independent sector because they didn't have the NHS capacity. Of course, that falls down because it's NHS consultants who are working in both the private and the NHS hospitals. So if they're working on one side, they they can't work on the other. But they did fund it more in the early years. You know, I'm not a fan of Blair particularly, but but in in terms of health spending yeah then it did and it made a huge difference and and quality and safety improved but they did things that they didn't need to do uh, like the private finance initiative pfi uh, otherwise known as pay for it indefinitely you know they had a time where interest rates were historically quite low and we could have bought the hospitals up front in the same way that we suddenly magicked 400 billion to spend on the pandemic we could have bought these hospitals up front rather than saddle them with outrageous mortgage repayments which meant that they had to cut services later on so they built so some nice yeah. new facilities but they could have funded it in a different way because and it's strange that's because they were so committed to we must involve private finance even though their whole thing was we're not going to be beholden to ideology but they were more be- they were as beholden to it <laughs> yeah. as you know the as the most sort of fervent support of the Soviet Union. Well, they said, you know, I can remember Harriet Harman saying that PFI was equivalent to privatisation and we'd never do it. And then as soon as they got into power, they did. I mean, part of it also was Gordon Brown wanted to keep it off the books. It's the the traditional problem in the NHS is you've always put your spending off or or the people repaying the debt for another year for the longer term. So he didn't want it to appear on the balance sheet. So, so I'm not, you know, Labour clearly weren't perfect. And the trouble with the private sector, as always happens, is that the private sector would say, well, if you want us to be involved in healthcare, you've got to give us really good contracts and we're going to cherry pick the easy work and you're going to have to pay us whether we do the work or not. And we didn't really have that hard-nosed negotiators. They just went, oh, yes, you do that then. So there were lots of contracts where people... Will you pay us whether we do the work yeah, or not? Yeah, and that's recently happened in, in during the pandemic. We the so ones like that? We, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to come and do Nottingham Playhouse... This is what I want for it. And if I don't turn up, I'll still get paid. Do we have PFI in comedy? But 
I mean, look, look I at what we've just like done. In, not in them, look but. at what we just done in the pandemic. We built all these Nightingale hospitals, which sounded fantastic at huge expense, but didn't have the staff because all the staff were on NHS intensive care units, so they were barely used. We paid private hospitals a fortune to take up the backlog of work, hoping that they would do non-COVID operations, and they did virtually nothing. Partly because all the consultants were tied up in the NHS. So time and time again, we throw all this money at the private sector and get nothing in return. And then all the dodgy uh, deals for PPE, the deals for test and trace, the the, the VIP Tory fast lane, that's where most of the fraud occurred. I mean, a, a vast sum of money has been wasted because we were absolutely desperate to chuck money at our mates in the private sector, thinking that they could deliver. Uh, and we could have used, there was um, Paul Nurse, who's a Nobel Prize winner, said very early on, he runs the Francis Crick Lab in London and said very early on, we can do testing. Uh, the only way to get hold of this pandemic was to test early before it took off. And we can use all these little NHS university labs like a flotilla uh, in Dunkirk, and we can actually get the testing up and running early. And the government refused, Matt Hancock refused, Public Health England refused. They said, no, we want these big private lighthouse laboratories to do it all. Um, and that's something the public inquirer will look at. But, you know, we could have, in, instead of Dido Harding's test and trace for however many billion we spent, we could have invested in uh, uh, public health services and frontline NHS to do that. So time and time again, there's this idea that outsourcing makes it better. Ian Hislop, I remember saying to me, give me 10 examples or one example yeah, yeah, yeah. where outsourcing has actually made things better. You might outsource the water cooler, but if you outsource vital services, it never makes it better because people just take their contract and piss off again when the money runs out. You don't invest in building the, the service whole, for the future. The point of it is to make a profit, yes. isn't it? So no, that's that's the whole yeah. reson. Yeah. So you're saying this now has somebody if somebody makes a profit out of it, then it's going to be more efficient. But of course their first the first thing they're thinking about is they've got to make a profit. It seems so yeah. utterly fucking obvious this that they if you source it out, especially if the person you source it out to you're sorting it out to them because they were the landlord of your fucking pub. <laughs> who you've never met. And, and uh, who you've never met. Yeah. And then at the end of it, you go, never mind. I'm going on. I'm a fucking celebrity. Get me fucking out of here. Yes. Anyway, I can see that. that you're going to have a hard time. I'm worried about your pulse being too high now, Mark. So it's, it's gone yeah. from one to the other. <laughs> it's, gone, it's gone up to 27. But that's, that uh, whole thing is extraordinary. Is that I remember doing Have I Got News For You with Boris Johnson while he was wanting to be London Mayor a few times. And you sit there and you go, oh, no, we're really going to nail him. We'll destroy him, etc." And, of course, it does the exact opposite. That, that launched yeah, his yeah, career, yeah, yeah. as yeah. I'm a celebrity will do with Hancock. He'll have his own shopping channel or something, and buttock fondling channel, and we won't be able to do anything about it. It. He'll cream it in. I, I fear that. So, now, one thing I, I want to ask you about is that I think is very sort of much, especially if you're um, with, with your private eye connections. Uh, so, the sort of role of like the whistleblowers, I think you referred to them uh, earlier on. So, these people who are people who sort of let know whatever's gone wrong in the NHS, they're pretty. Vital, aren't they? To, yeah, in to... all walks of life, actually, in the private and public sector, uh, a, a key safety mechanism is allowing uh, frontline workers and also in the NHS carers and relatives. They're often the patients themselves are often the first thing to spot things going wrong. Listening to people who are on the front line uh, and uh, addressing their safety concerns is vital, and actually is now made a professional duty in the NHS. So. I sort of kicked it all off partly. The, when I, I started writing for Private Eye in 1992 and initially wrote about junior doctors' working conditions, and then Tony, my comedy partner, was working at the Bristol Royal Infirmary with a nurse called Maggie Bolson, whose husband Steve was a paediatric anaesthetist and was telling anyone who'd listened that far too many babies were dying or suffering from brain damage after complex heart surgery in Bristol. And would I like to write about it in private line? And it was a huge departure for me. This is really turning all the guns on your profession. So what you're saying is... Everybody knows about this. The Royal College of Surgeons know, the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgeons, Department of Health, everybody knows apart from the parents. Uh, this is a story that demonstrates doctors aren't can't be trusted to regulate themselves in secret and people need to know. Uh, so, of course, I write about this. I've got no journalistic training and I'm thinking, you know, this brave whistleblower has given me this information. But writing it under a pseudonym in private eye, my pseudonym is MD, meant that they could just ignore it. So I wrote about it five times and they did nothing. And it was only when Steve went public as a whistleblower three years later, suddenly he became the most hated 
cardiac anaesthetist in Europe. He had to go to Australia to get a job um, because people just didn't like. And they were saying, well, look, the NHS is underfunded. These kids are really sick anyway. Some of them will die. And they came up with all sorts of lame excuses. Or a Steve laser sharp was saying, look, in other units, comparable units, they get much better results. There's something wrong in Bristol that needs fixing. So he kicked it all off. I gave evidence to the inquiry. There are 198 recommendations to make the NHS safer. So nice, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, the Care Quality Commission, all this stuff came out of Bristol. But it didn't seem to change much, partly because um, it, we almost swung the other way. We got over technical and, and you know, doctors suddenly had to do loads of administration and mandatory training that took them away from the front line. So some of it was counterproductive. But then on top of that, we then had shipmen and then we had mid-staffs. Uh, and again, people tried to blow the whistle, a huge uh, scandal in um, uh, in uh, basically mainly care of the elderly in mid-Staffordshire. And time and time again, the people who blow the whistle are the ones who suffer. They're the ones who generally have to lose their jobs. The was that true with shipmen then? It was people sort of There going, was a, a GP on, who noticed. So basically, right. when, when, you're, uh, when somebody dies in general practice and they're having a cremation, you have to get a doctor from another practice to sign the the different part of the form. Uh, we used to call it the ash cash, which is uh, rather vulgar because you you get paid for it. So there used to be a, a temptation to encourage people to have cremations rather than natural burials because the doctor gets £28 for it. That's what it was back in the day. It's probably more now. Anyway, he was noticing in his five partner practice that uh, Harold Shipman had more deaths and requests for cremations than his five partners put together. So he thought that something odd was going on. And then I think somebody uh, working with the, the uh, funeral director, something on a youth opportunity scheme, couldn't, most people, when they die, they put up a bit of a fight, they thresh about a bit, and they might pee themselves or poo themselves or whatever. She'd noticed that some of Harold Shipman's uh, victims were sitting there with a cup of tea, smile, almost a smile on their face, because he'd come in and give them a huge shot of diamorphine, and they died mercifully quickly, but it was clearly murder. So there were lots of little things, and had we had comparative death rates then and we'd looked at them, uh, we would have picked up shipment earlier. So there were lots of data clues. You know, that's David Spiegelhalter, who's the brain box statistician who pronounces on all sorts of things. He was the statistician on the Bristol Inquiry. I think he helped with shipment. And in the pandemic, often the data will blow a whistle. You'll see a very obvious outlier um, for deaths or something that you can pick up. Um, but traditionally, we go, oh, God, the NHS is under pressure. Anyway, we don't have enough staff. There's no point blowing the whistle because we can't do anything about it. Shit happens. We'll just move on. So moving from that culture to a culture where you value safety and, and you know, I always argued, I used to chair. Well, Shipman. Yeah, sorry. I used to chair the NICE conferences, National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Uh, and they do, you know, this, and they produce these guidelines to say, this is the excellent care that you should always get when you use the NHS. And I said, as alongside NICE, you said you need NIGE, which is the National Institute for Good Enough. So this is the care that's above a minimum standard that you should deliver when you're three members of staff down and your casualties overloaded, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So you can't always be clinical excellent, but you always need to be good enough. Uh, and and yeah, yes. If Shipman had sort of uh, waited a few years, the culture would have changed. And um, instead of killing himself, he'd have found that once he was released, he'd have been able to go on a reality television show. Exactly. Yeah. And he'd have probably done forty, well, whatever he's done in the past. Credit where it's yeah. due. He's done all the trials. He's come back with seven yeah. stars. I think if you can and, eat uh, a sheep's you know, vagina, you should be excused <laughs> anything. It, it is yeah, a bizarre yeah, yeah, old no. thing. It's but very clever and very cynical the way that. ITV have allowed him to to wash his reputation. I mean, it's it's <laughs> exactly. had a lot of thought gone but, into that. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people opposed to it. But you know, when he was he was out there with someone from uh, Albury City, you know, in the final. Uh, the uh, well, one last one last thing. Well, one two last thing. One, I've been doing a bit of me, in, in me, me show about this. I've got this sort of. Um, uh, I think this might be a bit sort of against what we've been talking about, but it's, uh, there's a phrase in the English language that drives me mad, which is like, oh, you can't be too careful, because I think it's something my mum would always have said. And I, I've mentioned in particular one uh, uh, these articles that will say, um, well, if you if you want to get rid of some of the weight, maybe you've still got some extra pounds that you put on during the pandemic, then maybe take up a bit of sport, something like that, but always consult your doctor first. And I always go, imagine, imagine doing that. Imagine going to the doctors. Yes, come in. 
Yes, what seems to be the trouble? There's no trouble, Doctor. It's just that I've booked up to play badminton on Tuesday. And I just thought I ought to contact Magic and go, get the fuck, get the fuck out. I've got people out there who've had a shit for a month. Fuck well, off. I think that's fair. I'm not sure I would be quite so strident. But the point, the other reason that the NHS is... Um, under so much pressure, we have as a society become very risk averse. In the old days, we'd sort our own shit out. We'd accept responsibility for risks. Kids would climb trees and fall out of them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and now we're so worried about being sued and defensive. People come up with this, you know, you need the, the, the hallmark of healthcare is, yes, we need decent health services, but we need people to, to accept as much personal responsibility as they reasonably can for their own health. And, you know, that means trying to source reasonably nutritious food if you can, taking a bit of exercise, et cetera, but also accepting a certain amount of risk. I mean, life without risk is incredibly dull. You have to take some risks. You have to teach your kids to take some risks. And occasionally you will come a cropper. Uh, but you're right. You can't medicalize every aspect of your life and take it down to the doctor. I mean, in the old days, you know, we used to have jokes about uh, people to call out the doctor because they had a wasp nest under the eaves. I remember seeing a chap came to see me because he wasn't sure he believed in God anymore. And I said, I said, have you tried the vicar? And he said, yeah, but he's only open from 10 till 12 on a Sunday. And it's rather a long walk. You know, we all had these jokes. But now, thanks to the Internet, every bit, you know, from the age of six upwards, people will attribute themselves a label. They will decide what label they want to be. And there's a huge number of different labels you can choose from. But they won't then sort it out themselves. They'll expect an expert to sort it out. And that's, you know, fueling the demand. People have a lot of information now and they're saying, gosh, maybe I have got this condition. Maybe I could be this or that or whatever. Uh, oh, I could talk to you for many, many hours. I'm sure you've got other things to do, especially if you've just uh, moved. And uh, also there's loads of other questions that I've got. Uh, I'm sure lots of other people have got along the lines of, oh, I've got this little thing. I had, this is one of the only other times I went to the doctor's. I found a little lump and I thought, that's it. This is how it starts. I'm done for. Uh, in, a, in six months' time, there'll be an article going, he found this little lump and now there he is, you know, what uh, in crawling around having chemo and whatever. That's it. I'm done for. And I had, a, I had a few shows to do and then I thought, right, I'll book up to see the doctor when I get back. So I made an appointment, and when I, I I didn't even touch the lump, I thought it's got. And then uh, a few days later, when it got to the time of the doctor's appointment, the lump had just gone. It had just gone. It must have been. And maybe it was in me. Head. I fucking I don't know. I, mean, I imagined it, dreamt it. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Whatever. It was just something. It was just, just gone. an M and M, &M I'm, I'm stuck gonna... to one of your hairs or something. Yeah, it could have been an M and M. I thought I'm not wasting a doctor's appointment. So I went in and she, this woman went, well, I said, what is it? I said, well, I had a little bit of lumpy. It's gone. And she said, well, it's gone then, isn't it? And I said, I know, but I just thought I ought to come anyway. And she went, what? For a lump that's gone? <laughs> I, did, I did feel a bit stupid. Like, I've come, I've come in because about eight years ago, I had a cold. I did feel a bit like that. But the one final question I want to ask okay. you, Phil. So you've done so many books and shows and radio and television and so on. What are the things that we should look out for that are coming up soon? Should we survive? What and what I'm doing? Oh, well, because I'm moving house. I didn't. I did. I toured a show. Um, uh, well, I did Edinburgh and have done a few gigs about the pandemic. So I, I did uh, Dr. Phil's COVID inquiry, which I might, when the public inquiry takes off, I might take on the road. Uh, and I did a, a show about my career when I retired called How I Ruined Medicine. But I'm currently trying to turn that into a biography, not to sell a million like Adam Kay, but just to, you know, just to reflect on how medicine has changed over the last 40 odd years. So those will come at some stage, but I've reached a stage where I don't rush through things now. I, I try to slow down and take things easily. So I've been pretending to write a, a memoir for about 20 years now, but I think now is the time. Uh, and yeah, it, it'll either be called How I Ruin Medicine. Uh, it might be called The Art of Living When You Know You're Going to Die. Um, or it might be called A Slow Descent into Kindness. The one thing I've noticed over the years is I was really quite harsh and aggressive when I was younger, and I've actually become a bit kinder when I'm older. And, and the thought I will leave you, and I had a lovely old Yorkshire GP who was my trainer. He was a bloke called Brian, and he retired after 40 years as a GP just after he'd had me as his trainee, so it could have been cause and effect. But I said, sum up your 40 years as a GP, and he went, save two, kill one. 
No, no, actually, it was the other way around. And that was the old style when medicine was therapeutic gossip and people popped in. And he used to, he used to go, life, life is a pool of shit, and our job is to direct people to the shallow end. Um, and whenever I'd make a mistake, he'd put his arm around my shoulder and go, don't worry, Phil, the medical degree is no substitute for clairvoyance. Um, but his favorite phrase, he always used to say, do you know what the most powerful drug in the world is? And I would always say methotrexate just to amuse him. And he'd go, it's kindness. It works for everyone. Very hard to get the dose wrong, free at the point of delivery. And that is actually true. If you think about what screws up people's health in the long term, it's cruelty. So if you're cruel to your kids at a very early age, often they never recover. They have appalling physical and mental health for their lifetime if you're cruel to them. Yeah, 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 and yeah. that goes now. So that's my issue, really, is that I... I am politically engaged, but I don't like cruelty. I hate the partisan cruelty of politics. Well, and I'm the, becoming a bit well, the soft two and things soppy combined. as I get older. No, not at all, because I think the two things manage to magically combine when we have an ex-health secretary use the cruelest fuckwit fucking of the lot. Well, lacking in insight. It's so spectacularly lacking insight. It's almost diagnosable. Like, it's just extraordinary. But, you know, it, it, you either get angry or you um, go and hug your dog. Um, so I'm trying the dog hugging at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Thank you very much, You're welcome. Dr. Phil Hammond. And I hope that lump clears up, that lump that went. I hope it doesn't come back. I almost certainly was an M&M. <laughs> no, That's what I'm saying. It was about 20 years ago. Well, I really... <laughs> if it's still not there, I think you're probably okay now. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> 